We're continuing with the second interlude. Kind of get on our big picture here. In the book Revelation, this one in interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets. And last week we talked about um, the top four things there. We identified the angel in chapter 10 as a vision of uh, Christ in his glory. Who, who speaks an oath about time. There will be no more delay. It's talking about the culmination, the end of redemption history. And then he's eating a scroll that represents a message he has to talk about, and he's recommissioned in chapter 10, verse 11, to again prophesy to all the different groups of people on the earth. In chapter 11, we see some of what that message involved. Now, this maybe aren't, isn't exactly what you know, you'd hear said about you know, a gospel presentation or something, but remember, we're still in this apocalyptic vision kind of environment. So we're going to start out measuring a temple, and then we're going to talk about two witnesses. And actually, the last four things could be two witnesses, part one, part two, part three, Part four, because they're all about the same thing, but we're going to kind of break it up as we look at it. Uh, intertext, to talk about those are the Old Testament allusions or passages that may have something to say toward understanding this. And, and as we've seen before, these are all apocalyptic sections of Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah. So with that, let's, uh, I guess I get out of the way again here and read our first couple verses. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure at the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Uh, it's hard to read Revelation without big question marks in your mind. You know, what does this mean? What are we talking about? Well, a couple of things that are important here. Uh, I noted chapter, last verse of chapter 10, where John was recommissioned, that it says he was told, but the, the uh, Greek text actually has a plural verb there, that if you put it in the context, it was the joint voice of God from heaven, and Jesus Christ commissioning John for this message. We're back to the singular now, so probably the same angel from chapter 10, uh, giving these instructions to John. And John's called to act out a parable. Now, that's a very classic prophetic thing. If you've ever read any of the Old Testament prophets, they were asked to do some pretty strange stuff. And this is pretty mild by comparison. He's told he's given this measuring rod, and he's and he's told to measure the temple and the altar, and those who worship there. Now the the it's interesting this word for measuring rod is one word in the Greek text, and in the Greek Old Testament, it's uh, used 28 times, but 18 of those are in Ezekiel 40, 41, and 42, where the angel is measuring the temple in that. Uh, vision that Ezekiel has. 
the word is used that way in the New Testament here in chapter 11 and again in chapter 21 in Revelation where, again, there's another vision of an angel measuring a temple or measuring the, the New Jerusalem, New Temple. What's interesting about those kind of three things together is that Ezekiel has got all kinds of measurements. You're told what this measured. It was this big and this big and this big. And in, in chapter 21, you're told and it is this size and this size and this size. John's given a measuring rod and told to measure, but we have no measurements. There's nothing in this passage that tells us what the results of this little exercise was going to be. Which means there's probably limited help from Ezekiel on this one, and maybe even from the looking forward, but we can't really do that, you know, and be fair about reading Revelation. We've got to wait till we get there. This gives us an opportunity, though, because the challenges of understanding biblical passages when you don't have real obvious things there is, uh, you know, a practice we should all be going through. We should all be applying these simple principles of interpretation. And one of the primary ones of those is context. What's the context of whatever you're reading? So looking at this, immediate context is revelation, and we need to ask the question, well, has John told us anything about temples or altars? Now, Anytime you read a New Testament document, or Old Testament document for that matter, even though you maybe read it, this, this is the first time you ever did this. You don't know what's ahead. You just know what's gone past, what you've already read. And in this case, we have a temple mentioned prior to chapter 11 and chapter 3 to the church at Philadelphia. Uh, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. That maybe would apply a little bit here. But certainly more importantly, I think, is what we saw in chapter 7, which is the other previous interlude. There's a lot of ties between these two interludes that you need to make, and we'll make a few of them here. In chapter 7, when that multitude of the redeemed is identified, they're described as being before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. Only two references to the temple prior to chapter 11 in Revelation. Altar, we see a, used a few more times. We find it in chapter 6, uh, twice in chapter 8, once in chapter 9. I think the most relevant one, though, is in chapter 6, verse 9, where in the fifth seal, when it was opened, John says, I saw under the temple the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Given that context, it would appear that the temple and the altar that John's supposed to measure here in chapter 11 has something to do with this temple, these redeemed, and, and this altar where you have these, those slain for bearing witness for the truth. Once we've looked at the context of Revelation, then we can talk about, okay, well, is there anything else in the New Testament that can help us with temples? And I think there is some very important things. And one of them, to start with, is comes right from John's Gospel in chapter 2. Uh, Jesus has just driven the money changers out of the courtyard of the temple, and he's confronted by the Jews and said, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
And they kind of scoff at him and say, it took us, you know, 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to build it again in three days? That's where the conversation ends there. But John gives us a little parenthetical statement right after that, and, and he writes, but Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Now, we also have some other references to temple and other places in the New Testament that are pretty straightforward. Paul in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12 says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Okay, there's one connection to this body idea. And then he says also in Corinthians, he asks a rhetorical question, Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. Well, I've got a couple of connections here that are important. Temple and the body of Christ. Peter communicated the same idea in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I think this all suggests that this setting of these first two verses on measuring the temple has to do with recognizing the temple as the church and the altar as the church persecuted. And you see both of these things kind of captured in the previous Revelation passages. The physical temple in the first century uh, had a court of Gentiles. That was the outermost court. That was someplace Gentiles could come, non-Jews could come, but they were prohibited beyond that point. Now, penalty of death, by the way. So it was a pretty strict uh, enforcement of that. The, if the temple is a metaphor for the New Testament church, and the church is made up of Jews and non-Jews, then who are the people in the temple court that are not being mes- measured in verse 2? Well, there's a couple possibilities. The first option is that those outside the temple proper, the altar and the temple, are symbolic of those within the church who are unfaithful and have compromised with the world. You recall five of the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 fell into that category. That's one possibility. Another possibility which I think is a little more complicated, but maybe a little more relevant, suggests the church is seen from two different perspectives. One is the temple and the altar. That picture of the church is as spiritually protected and secure. And the outer court in the holy city represents a church that's persecuted and suffering. Now, the following context and Revelation seems to really support more of that idea because that's what we're going to get to here in just a minute. So the subsequent visions of Revelation talk about the suffering of the church, the persecution of the church. John is told that this trampling of the holy city will be for a symbolic period of 42 months. Now we can draw from the first interlude in chapter 10 from last week, if you recall, if you were here. Uh, where we connected Daniel's prophecy of the period of trouble leading to the end of redemption history, uh, when the mystery of God would be fulfilled, with this phrase that in Daniel, time, times, and half a time. 
So I know you were told there would be no math. But we're going to have a little bit here. It's simple math, okay, simple math. So time, times, and half a time. If you convert that to a number, and if you read the Bible, you see numbers in the Old Testament, New Testament, they're all words. They don't have, they didn't use Arabic numerals. Uh, 1 plus 2 plus 0.5 equals 3.5. All right? So 42 months, if that's years, which it is in Daniel's prophecy, three and a half years, and you, you know, view that in months, it's 42 months. So it's the same time period. Next verses, we're going to get into a 1,260 days that witnesses will prophesy, which is the same period of time. Now, I think this is where Daniel gives us some really interesting background for this, some intertext background. And it's looking at kind of this bigger picture of the, Daniel's vision of the 70 weeks there's lots of debate about how to interpret this, and of course, as Marty and, I, and Al, when he was here, were saying, you know, we're, we're taking a particular tack, we're going to kind of move along that line, and so that's what I'm looking at here. The 70 weeks lead up to the finish of transgression and into sin, the atonement for iniquity, and everlasting righteousness. Now, that sounds pretty much to me like the end of redemption history. We're coming to a change of some kind, and that's what Revelation is talking about. It also has some characters in it that become important, and got lots of verses being skipped here, but uh, the prince who is to come that destroys the city and sanctuary. And then this for half a week, three and a half days, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And we have him further named at the end of this last verse as the desolator the one who makes things desolate. Now, as we look at Revelation chapter 11, I think we can see that if, you, if this is, in fact, the picture that we have at the beginning is the church, a picture of the church during that time period between God, Jesus' advent, first advent, and his return, when we are just taking a message out to the world and dealing with the consequences of it, then that time period is this three and a half weeks. It's symbolic. It's just a time period. Now, the good thing about three and a half is that, if you remember anything about our symbolism of numbers, seven's the number of completeness. Three and a half, then, would be, okay, it's incomplete. There's a, there's a terminus to this that's it's, it's, you know, cut short somehow. And while it's been a long time, and probably in our lives we think, when, Lord, are you going to come back? It's still not going to go as long as it could. When the door's time, it'll be done. It'll be cut. Now, the, this character, the, the desolator, okay, uh, in, in Daniel uh, 12, is probably the same one we saw in Revelation 9. Only there, we have him by the names of Abaddon and Apollyon. This prince who was to come, Paul describes in Ephesians, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We're going to see a lot more of that before we're done here. But for right now, I think we have here a picture of, and these, it, that's going to come up of the church in a situation where it's witnessing, it's taking the message out to the world, it's meeting opposition, 
It's a great tribulation for them there, but it's going to come to an end. Which brings us to the two witnesses. I will grant authority, this is the same person talking, giving instructions, by the way, uh, to John, to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Seems pretty formidable. This may well be an allusion to Zechariah 4. Um, Zechariah does have a vision there. But in that vision, you got uh, two olive trees and one lampstand. So it doesn't quite fit. But interestingly enough, the last verse of this vision in Zechariah 4.14 says, And these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now that looks kind of similar. More helpful, I think, with this idea of lampstands particularly, is the connection with Revelation chapter 1. What have we already seen in the context, the immediate context? The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Only two of those lampstands, Smyrna and Philadelphia, were persevering. There was the only witness that was really where it was supposed to be. And I think these two witnesses, these two witnesses here, like those churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia, are representative of the faithful witness throughout church history. They also called these the two olive trees, the two lampstands. Olive trees usually represent in the Bible the blessing or beauty of God. Um, Lampstand, well, that should be an easy one for us after reading the Sermon on the Mount. You are to be the light of the world. This is the message that John was recommissioned to prophesy that has the sweetness to it. It's the gospel of salvation, the gospel of what God has done for us. But his message was going to be one also of judgment, mostly one of judgment. And they're wearing sackcloth. These two witnesses are because sackcloth throughout the scripture is associated with the sins of the people and the mourning over those sins and the need for repentance. It's going to take place. The duration is 1,260 days. That drops us right into Daniel's last half of Daniel's 70th week. The image of the two witnesses may draw from some other areas as well. Uh, certainly the Jews of the time of uh, Jesus and the time that uh, John was writing uh, believe that there would be prophets like Moses and Elijah that would come along. Uh, Moses, when he has some of his last words to the people of Israel, God's speaking through him says, the Lord your God will raise you up a prophet like me from among you. And in Malachi uh, chapter 4 verse 5 we read that I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. I think even more importantly because of John's personal experience is the transfiguration. On that mountain Jesus was transfigured into glory and was speaking with 
Moses and Elijah. The two Old Testament representatives or personification of the law and the prophets. And we learn from Luke's gospel that their discussion was about the departure of Jesus. His death, his resurrection, his ascension. I'm sure that sort of informed John's thinking on this as well, or how he understood it. Something not found in Moses and Elijah, or any of the Old Testament prophets over, is fire pouring from their mouth, consuming their foes. Now that seems really strange to us, but this is apocalyptic literature. And that's very common. These kind of images are very common. That's why we need to read it in in this kind of genre that it is. It's often found in apocalyptic literature. So what does disability symbolize? Well, the important things about it is not that there's this literal flamethrower of a mouth taking somebody out that's giving you a bad time. The thing is, it's what's coming from the mouth. It probably symbolizes properly the image, by image, the words of the prophecy. And really, there's a tradition for that because Jeremiah was told by the Lord in Jeremiah chapter 5, because you have spoken this word, behold, I'm making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. Such a message of judgment was going to draw opposition. No question about that. This has been true throughout history of the Old Testament prophets, throughout the history of the church. Whenever the people involved faithfully proclaim the word of God, there will be opposition. John's vision that he has here in verse chapter 11, the opposition comes in the form of another view of the character we've already identified as the desolator and Abaddon and Apollyon. So here's another picture of him. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that, is symbolic, that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell, sorry about the number there, uh, on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. We've already been introduced to the bottomless pit or the abyss, depending on your English translation, back in chapter 9. That was uh, opened in the fifth seal, fifth trumpet, and lots of bad stuff came out. Um, Now we see this is also the source of the beast. Uh, The beast here, uh, the Greek word uh, for this, is used in the New Testament of animals generally, the beast of the field kind of idea. But in Revelation, it's used 39 times, all but two of which are for an animal-like creature representative of evil. We'll learn a lot more about the beast 
as I said, when we get to the following chapters here. Chapter 13 and following. The important thing to see in chapter 11 is the beast will attack and kill the two witnesses, who, though very powerful, submit to martyrdom. Once they are killed, their bodies are left lying in the street of the great city. I've talked about these phrases that are repeated that are important in, in Revelation. This, there's another one here with the great city. Literally, it's the city of the great one. It's another one of those repeated phrases in Revelation, and it's repeated seven times. This is the first one. So look forward as we go forward. The great city is called Sodom and Egypt. Uh, and where their Lord, the two witnesses' Lord, was crucified. It's compared with Sodom. That's the Old Testament exemplar of evil, of wickedness. Egypt is the Old Testament exemplar of persecution in the Old Testament. That's how they think about it. They use those as types for that. And we need to notice, though, that Sodom was a city, but Egypt was a country or an empire. So this is a symbolic statement. Again, this is not a literal city we're talking about here. This is that something that represents these two things, wickedness and persecution. When you kind of look at it that way, then you realize that what we have here is a symbol for the ungodly and spiritual realm existing on the earth. The great city is further, is further described as the place where the Lord was crucified, which again does not mean Jerusalem. Because later on, we're going to find out the great city is named Babylon, which is symbolic of the city of man and the way he does things. And in fact, it's put in opposition. But before we get done with Revelation, the city of man and Babylon, which is destroyed over several chapters in opposition and contrast to the city of God, the new Jerusalem in chapter 21. In verses 9 and 10, we have the two repeated phrases for humanity. I talked about one of those last week, the fourfold groups of humanity, and there's seven of those. We have them here again, the peoples and tribes and languages and nations, some of whom gloat over the bodies of these two witnesses and refuse them a decent burial. And we also have another one that I mentioned that I was going to say more about today, which is the dwellers on the earth. That's another phrase that, again, you see seven times in Revelation. So I actually put a chart up of these. And uh, in the words of Calvin, and, and not, not uh, the Calvin you're thinking of, Calvin is in Jim Watterson's Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> I must obey the inscrutable exhortations of my soul and point out the chiasm in these verses. <laughs> You see this, and you've got three of them before, three of them after, and then the middle one you've got sandwiched on each end. It's bookended. Now, where that's important is that if you know anything about how chiasms are used to the Old and New Testament, there's usually some kind of emphasis being put on the centerpiece of it. And so we have, I think, an important, important 
point about the dwellers on the earth in this verse. They will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because the two prophets had been a torment to them. The message of the gospel will never be well received. We were promised that. Paul wrote in his letter to the church that the Jews demand signs, the Greeks seek wisdom, and we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to the Greeks or to the Gentiles. John's vision and John's vision here, the dwellers of the earth, have moved beyond those criticisms of the first century audience of the gospel. For them, the preaching of the gospel was more than just an obstacle or foolishness. It was a torment. The same word that can be translated torture. The dwellers on the earth were idolaters whose ultimate trust was in the things of the world. And when you talk to them about something outside the world, they're not very happy with that. They won't tolerate that. They're going to take an active opposition to that. This shouldn't surprise us. Particularly today, we see this. Even just a mention of something in the scripture, if it doesn't fit the mold or the pattern or the expectations of the world today, it's hate speech. And in this setting right now, the way we are so far, they appear to have won. Now, if you were just listening to someone read Revelation, and this all the farther I got, might be time to get kind of depressed. But this was not the end of the faithful church as represented by these two witnesses. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and a great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. Praise God. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we noted earlier that three and a half is cutting short of a fullness. So the death of the two witnesses, which was supposed to be permanent, was cut short. In the first interlude, if you remember back to chapter 7, John was asked about the identity of the multitude there, and he was uh, the response he had, the whole exchange there, was something pretty classic in in, uh, rabbinic teaching and and Old Testament teaching. It says that one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And John realizes this is a rhetorical question. Uh, it's a learning question. And I said to him, sir, you know. We talked to that, about that being an allusion to a, a vision in Ezekiel 37 where the Lord says to Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? Remember the valley of the bones? Uh, and I answered, O Lord God, you know. Well, I think that what we have here with the breath from the life of God is another one of those intertext situations where the rest of Ezekiel 37 talks a lot about this valley of the bones who will be caused to breathe. And so uh, the Lord uh, 
tells uh, Ezekiel, uh, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And at the very end, the last two ver- couple verses of this chapter 37 of, of Ezekiel say, And you shall know that I am Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. As the enemies of these two witnesses that were having so much fun celebrating and had that celebration cut short as well, all they could do is watch and be afraid and their fears justified. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is to come. The dramatic resurrection is shortly followed by a great earthquake that caused this damage that's described there, a tenth and 7,000. Aside from something symbolic in the numbers of 10 and 7 and 1,000, I don't know really what that's trying to communicate. I couldn't find a whole lot that many commentators that would venture too much out on that. But one thing that all agreed on, it was the beginning of the final judgment. Maybe partial here, but the final judgment is coming. And I think that that makes sense with what we're seeing. The word for fear here is a very strong word in Greek. It's usually translated terrified in your English translations. And it has to do with, uh, not with a reverence for God or a terror, fear of God that changed to you know, repentance of some kind. It's a terror of something else. And I think it's the same picture we see that Paul wrote about Jesus in the hymn in chapter 2 of Philippians. In the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The dwellers of the earth here gave glory to the God of heaven because they were compelled to by this dark reality of judgment. The phrase great earthquake is another one that's used three times in Revelation. It may be significant here. We saw it first in chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. We'll see it again in chapter 16, verses 7 through 21. And both of those sections have a lot of common images that are all about the very end, the final judgment. This is it. In chapter 11, the great earthquake is found in a single verse, but it is the last word before the interlude closes, and it's introducing the third woe. The first verse to the next section is, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord, and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. I'd like to just take a couple of extra minutes here and do some application from this. What can we learn from the two witnesses? 
given that we have some semblance of understanding of who and what they are and what they represent. And I think that we've already noticed, I mean, we already said that you know, this, the, the good news, the gospel, uh, the life, death, resurrection, ascension, future return of Jesus is not a popular message. We never should expect it should be. Uh, Jesus told us you will always be on that rough path. You will never be the majority. We should not fool ourselves to think we ever will be. The vision of two witnesses paints a harsh picture, though, because this is, a, this is dramatic. This is a conflict, and the two points are the only of that conflict or the only polarization in all the world we talk about, all the polarization we have. The only one that's important is that one right there. Both ends of that pole involve fallen humanity. The difference is what they've done with Jesus. Is he our redeemer or is he someone to be rejected? Once place is determined uh, not by a matter of degrees or some place on a spectrum, this is, as Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather scatters. Not the kind of thing people want to hear. And because the people at both ends are flawed and inconsistent and prone to confuse motives, uh, the followers of Jesus can get distracted from the real conflict. And I think that's easy for us to do. The most important question is how we handle the opposition to our message of Christ crucified. If we respond in a manner consistent with the biblical worldview, then our attitudes and behavior will be characterized by a couple verses that I think, a couple passages I think hit this pretty good. In Peter, he says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your heart honor Christ as Lord, as Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And really, probably even more relevant to this, I think, is the Hebrews 11 passage where you have preceding this is this hall of faith of all these saints of the Old Testament. And they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And that's exactly where Revelation is heading. When we step outside of these kind of standards, though, we will find ourselves in the company of those five churches in chapters 2 and 3 who weren't being faithful to their witness. 
I think because of that whole idea that the church has a unique opportunity right now, at least in recent history, to demonstrate lives that can be a genuine light but avoid all the vitriol and anger and fear in the society around us. That's a hard thing, a hard thing to do. But we've got the spirit of God. We should be able to do it. So I'm going to close this. Instead of praying, I'm going to read a prayer. And while I'm doing that, you guys can want to play the last song and kind of come up. Uh, and, and we'll get ready to go from there. So this is from the Valley of Vision. If you, you know, if you, it's, a, it's a prayer, so if you want to close your eyes, bow your heads, whatever you want to do, or just listen. Uh, and I think it really hit this section well. It says, Thou God of all grace, Thou hast given me a Savior, produce in me a faith to live by Him, to make Him all my desire, all my hope, all my glory. May I enter Him as my refuge, built on Him as my foundation, walk in Him as my way, follow Him as my guide, conform to Him as my example, receive His instructions as my prophet, rely on His intercession as my high priest, obey Him as my king. May I never be ashamed of Him or His words, but joyfully bear His reproach, never displease Him by unholy or imprudent conduct, never count it a glory if I take patiently when buffeted for a fault. Never make a multitude my model. Never delay when your word invites me to advance. May thy dear son preserve me from the present world of evil so that its smiles never allure, nor its frowns terrify, nor its vices defile, nor its errors delude me. May I feel that I am a stranger and a pilgrim on earth, declaring plainly that I seek a country. My title is to it in becoming a reality daily more clear, my meetness for it more perfect, my foretaste of it more abundant. And whatsoever I do may be done in the Savior's name. Amen.